Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. When you think back to your birth, do you recall it fondly? The way they say you're supposed to feel about this momentous moment. Or do you try to block it out? Cry about it? Feel like it was an event you don't even want to remember? For too many families, birth isn't a peaceful event or even a happy one, but something that brings longer-lasting traumas for all. Though many tend to think that if baby is healthy, there's no reason for this, Unfortunately, a healthy baby does not mean there was no trauma. This week, I am honored to have spoken with Dr. Kathy Kendall Tackett, the leader in research on both birth trauma and how it happens, what it can look like, the various effects of it afterwards on the family, but also what others can do to help heal and how we can reduce the frequency of such trauma going forward. It doesn't matter who you are or your own experience. This is an issue that is vital for all of us to understand and work to change. I am so incredibly pleased to have with me today Dr. Kathy Kendall Tackett. Now, if you don't know Kathy, she is a health psychologist and international board-certified lactation consultant. She is the owner and editor-in-chief of Proclaris Press, a small press specializing in women's health. She is also the editor-in-chief of the journal Psychological Trauma and the founding editor-in-chief of Clinical Lactation, a position she held for 11 years. She's fellow of the American Psychological Association in Health and Trauma Psychology, the past president of the APA Division of Trauma Psychology, and the chair-elect of APA's Publications and Communications Board. She specializes in women's health research, including breastfeeding, depression, trauma, and her health psychology, pardon me, and has won many awards for her work, including the 2019 President's Award for Outstanding Contributions to the Field of Trauma Psychology from the American Psychological Association. Kathy has authored more than 470 articles or chapters and is the author or editor of 40 books, including her forthcoming book, which is called Breastfeeding Doesn't Have to Suck. Thank you so much for being here. I cannot believe 470. What have you been doing anything besides writing lately? Well, keep in mind uh, that's over a fairly long period of time. So yeah, <laughs> that's it's not it's not every every day that I do that certainly. But uh, no, it's like when you add up 30 plus years in a field, you know. Papers tend to stack up. <laughs> that's still a lot for 30 plus years, I'm going to say, because, wow, that's amazing. Well, today I am so happy to have you on because as maybe guest, hearing all of your expertise, particularly in trauma, um, we are going to be talking about birth trauma and some of the events that go on after that. Um, but before we even get to that, how did you become interested in studying trauma, but then specifically birth trauma? Well, uh, the trauma work actually started back way, you know, many years ago, back in 1983, actually. I was um, in my master's program in California, and I uh, was actually uh, got an internship at a rape crisis center. And at the time, child sexual abuse was first becoming um, an issue. People were kind of recognizing it. And so they asked if I would go down to San Francisco and get some training so that I could do some training around our local community. And so I said, sure. And I went down and got trained by a couple of the really top people that were right in the field, like some of the pioneers who really studied that. And so that was kind of the beginning. And so, it, you know, one thing led to another, it led to an internship when we moved down to Silicon Valley. And then, you know, where I was supposed to kind of, they didn't really know exactly what to do with me because I was a developmental psych major and they weren't sure where to put me. So um, I actually was doing intake and realized actually in their forms, there was actually a lot of data. And I said, you know, can I 
go in there and kind of mine this data and do a study. And, you know, they eventually said yes, uh, even though they traditionally have actually turned down researchers, but they liked the idea of not having to bug their clients again. And it was one of the first treatment programs for incest survivors, you know, in the whole United States. So it was like, it was a really, it turned out to be a really rich source, you know? And so that was kind of my interest is, you know, looking at family violence research, um, you know, coming in as one of the reasons I got my PhD because I wanted to continue doing that. Uh, but in terms of birth trauma, I actually, you know, we were kind of talking, you know, in the break about, you know, being pregnant while being in grad school. And I was actually, you know, like right at the end of my pregnancy as I was defending my dissertation. Um, and so kind of came into it pretty unprepared, honestly, and didn't have a great birth experience and really became actually pretty depressed. And so I started actually doing some research on postpartum depression, just looking at the studies, I thought, okay, I want to try to understand my experience and I want to try to understand it in the way I've been trained, which is as a researcher. So I started kind of going through the, the studies and stuff. And one of the things that really struck me is, you know, at the time, the so-called experts were telling everybody that postpartum depression was caused by, you know, that drop in hormones, you know, and I thought, okay. And I wasn't seeing that in the studies. I, I was not, I was seeing the opposite, in fact. Um, and so that was actually one of the things that kind of led me to uh, be interested in writing a book. I thought at first it was an article and then it kind of I realized because it was going to be bigger than that. So I got this book called How to Write a Book Proposal and I wrote a book proposal and pitched it to this editor I knew at Sage and they ended up picking it up. And so that's kind of how it started. And the birth trauma bit of it is part of what was a difficult part for me was that my birth was so you know, really incredibly difficult, you know, and it wasn't a cesarean. And so then people didn't, you know, even people interested in birth trauma at that point didn't want to talk to you if you had had a vaginal delivery that wasn't great. You know, we've kind of changed the way we frame that now. But that was actually, for me, kind of like the beginning of being interested in it. And then as I was interviewing people for that first book, you know, so many of the people I talked to said, oh, yeah, you know, my, my depression was caused by, um, you know, was caused by hormones. And I say, okay. And so then they go on and tell me about some horrible birth. You know, one of the women actually had an unmedicated C-section. I mean, they actually like held her down and finished. She kept saying, I could feel that. And then by the time they realized they basically held her down and finished the C-section. And she was a nurse at this hospital where this happened. You know, and it was just like, I remember just feel, feeling ill for like a couple of days after that. It was just so horrible. Um, so that's actually kind of how I started. And around that time, you know, the, the, you know, the PTSD diagnosis at, at that point had only been around, you know, for, you know, like eight, 10 years when I first started looking at this. And I remember reading one of the seminal books on, on post-traumatic stress disorder. And it was talking about, you know, things that we use to frame in terms of trauma. We, you know, it was talking about combat vets. It was talking about people who survived the Holocaust. It was talking about um, sexual assault. And, you know, at the time you couldn't really diagnose PTSD after birth, but when I was looking at the symptoms, I was like, this fits, you know? And so I, I wrote about it in 1992. I actually sat there and said, you know, this fits the PTSD diagnosis. It didn't fit the, what they called, you know, the event criteria, because at that point, you know, the, the event that caused the trauma had to rise to the level of, um, you know, uh, being outside the range of normal human experience. That was the, that was the criteria. So obviously birth's not going to fit that, you know, and so it didn't. And, um, 
you know, but the symptoms, you know, the, the pattern of symptoms certainly did. And so now actually we can actually diagnose this, you know, under the new criteria, um, we can actually, you know, and so now we're getting a lot of research on birth trauma, but back then, I mean, there was like nothing. And in fact, some of the popular parenting books were even saying stuff like, um, you know, if you've had a problem with your birth, maybe, you know, it's your problem. It's, it's, and I remember reading that and actually uh, what to expect the first year and thinking, whoa, okay, you know, maybe it's just you, you know, you've got a problem. And it's kind of like, okay, wow, very sympathetic. <laughs> that is horrible. That is... Oh, I mean, I first off, you've left me, I'm going to be sick for days thinking about that poor woman with an unmedicated C-section. I, I mean, just the fact that anyone thought that was okay yeah. is mind boggling to me. I did want to ask you, though, you said something that I found really interesting about when you started looking at the research on the idea of hormones, that the opposite right. was what you were finding was that right. it. So can you elaborate on that a little bit? Oh, sure. Well, you know, the whole premise, and this was actually based on kind of an old theory, was that the thing that was causing depression was when once the placenta is delivered, you know, you have this radical drop. And really kind of the thinking behind it was there can't be any other explanation than some kind of endogenous hormonal explanation. You know, it's kind of true with women. Don't we say that? You know, it's like if, if it's any problem, it's caused by their hormones. You know, and so it was like, you know, just this drop and that's what caused it. And so then it led to some interventions that were not particularly effective, like, you know, putting an estrogen pass on people or using prophylactic, you know, progesterone, you know, things like that. And it's like, we know what that does to breastfeeding. It completely sacks it. Um, but there was no real evidence that it worked, you know, and especially once they did a double blind trial, you, you couldn't see that that worked. Well, it was a really important article that was published in 1983. And it was by these two anthropologists and they basically kind of challenged this hormonal idea. And they said, you know, there's parts of the world where very few women have even the baby blues, let alone depression. And what they did is they went through and they pulled out kind of a list of what they called, you know, sort of critical social structures that protect new mothers. And they were, they were manifested different across countries, but there were these, you know, like one of them was like recognizing postpartum as a unique time you know, or recognizing the mother, you know, in terms of her accomplishment, but the fact that she had, you know, had this baby, you know, and they, you know, there was a one piece that I tend to use and it was talking about these people from uh, Uganda, the Chaga people. And they were saying about, they were, you know, singing songs such as sung to warriors returning from battle. You know, it's like, you know, it's just incredible, you know, and it's like, it's so different than what we experience in, in North America. It's really quite different. Um, so, you know, that was actually one of the things that first started challenging it. But the other thing is when they really tried to pin down, how are the hormones doing this? They, they couldn't. And it's like a lot of studies were finding, some of the better studies were actually finding that there didn't seem to be any link with hormones, but it seemed to be that there was a link with things like lack of social support. You know, so that was kind of the first sort of chink in the armor. Um, but the other thing that was a huge kind of miss was that they never bothered looking to see if women were more likely to be depressed during pregnancy. And they actually found, you know, okay, so if, if they're depressed during pregnancy, that completely blows that theory out of the water. They found actually the highest risk is actually the third trimester of pregnancy. You know, second highest is immediate postpartum, obviously. But, the, you know, that, that third trimester of pregnancy. Now, when you look at depression from the framework of psychoneuroimmunology, which, you know, one of the things they identify is the role of the inflammatory response system, particularly in mental health. And it's like, it, it's the field that really connects mind and body. 
And one of the things that they have actually documented very well is that inflammation is the thing that underlies depression. And if you think about that, you know, that, that pattern of like last trimester of pregnancy and early postpartum, the inflammation theory fits much better in terms of a fit, you know, physiology. And basically all the other risk factors translate into, you know, increased inflammation. You know, it's like if you're under a lot of stress, you're going to have more inflammation. If you're experiencing pain, your body's going to react to it by increasing inflammation. You know, so if, if you have a history of trauma, you're going to have, a, you know, a much more sort of hyperactive inflammatory response. You know, and so you can kind of go through the whole list of everything. But the, the inflammation thing is really interesting because it's like in third trimester of pregnancy, um, what you actually see is that there's a natural rise in these inflammatory molecules in the third trimester of pregnancy which from the body standpoint makes a lot of sense because these molecules fight infection and heal wounds. And so if your body knows you're going to have an open cervix for six weeks, it's going to raise your inflammation levels because that's going to actually protect you from getting infection. But if you add some of these other stressors to it, what that's going to do is push you into the depression range. Okay. And so that the inflammation model fits the data pattern actually perfectly, you know, but the estrogen and progesterone it does not fit at all. Uh, and in fact, you know, I said the estrogen and progesterone, I mean, I'd be happy to kind of let people have that little theory if, if it didn't have consequences, but it does, you know, and the, you know, if instead, if we recognize that inflammatory part, then we can actually deal with that by using treatments that we know lower inflammation, you know, um, and it's, it's some of them are surprisingly easy. Social support lowers, lowers inflammation. Uh, Omega three fatty acids lower inflammation. Um, wanted touch lowers inflammation because it activates oxytocin, which suppresses the stress response. You know, so you know, these theories unfortunately do have consequences. So we want to make sure that they really line up with what the data is saying. That's why I said that you know the hormonal things just has not stood the test of time. Now you still have some diehards that are like, yeah, but I still think it's estradiol. It's like. Okay. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I still hear people touting it all the time and parents being told that's what's wrong yeah. with them. So mothers that are struggling are told it's a hormonal problem. But yeah, with inflammation, I was going to say, right, when you said it is, yeah, the social support. We know that the more supportive we are, the lower the stress, the lower the inflammation. So we have a natural built-in tendency to, you know, help ourselves through others but of course our culture doesn't really focus on social support at all and right. and and they wouldn't think that that would actually change a physiological marker but you know even yeah. things okay if you think okay i have to take something for this well the ssri class of antidepressants actually lower inflammation they're anti-inflammatory you know and what's really interesting is now because they've recognized this inflammation piece which they didn't when they were making those they were focused on you know neurotransmitters they've actually recognized that if you add something like say an ibuprofen to an antidepressant, that's not working or an omega-3 fatty acid, which I think would be my preference, um, that it actually increased the effectiveness of it. It's like once they recognize this inflammation piece, you know, then they can address it. Most forms of psychotherapy actually lower inflammation because it turns off that stress response. Exercise is, you know, that's as effective as antidepressants. And, you know, we know specifically that it lowers those pro-inflammatory molecules systemically. That's where we want to do it. You know, so, um, you know, through a, a, a number of complicated studies that they did at Ohio State, that's actually specifically how they how they demonstrated that. And they demonstrated it actually by wounding people. You probably heard about these studies <laughs> where they were like, you know, they do a punch biopsy and they'd see how long it takes to heal. You know, and it's like you think to yourself, wow, I'd love to see what the IRB 
<laughs> and who are the people that signed up for it? I was always like, that wouldn't be me. <laughs> yeah, okay. So some of the early stuff was on medical students. I could kind of see that. But like they did one on marital hostility and they actually burned people. They, you know, and so if you're high in marital hostility, you had, you know, like fewer of the cytokines at a wound site and more systemically, you know, and it's like, I'm thinking, man, you know, my husband actually said, let's go be in this study where they're going to get, they're going to burn us. I mean, I'd be pretty damn hostile. I really would. <laughs> so it's like, the confounding factor of all of it is what did you just ask me to do? We may not have been hostile before, but we are now. Yeah. So, you know, but that's actually how they kind of demonstrated it because it's like, you know, they were able to like draw fluid and see, okay, there's fewer of the molecules where they're supposed to be, but if you exercise, it puts them where they're supposed to be, you know, so they actually had some really, you know, like I said, series of studies that actually demonstrated this really eloquently. So again, it gives you a lot of alternatives for treating things like depression. And by the way, anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder follow the same pattern. So it's like, it gives you a lot of, you know, things for treating it, which I think are really helpful, you know? And it's like I said, you know, I think people want to talk about hormones because they want to say, it's not your fault, you know? And I would say it's not your fault, but the physiology is this instead of this. And that is such a group. And I think what the hormone thing also does is it allows people to say, it's not our fault either. It may be it's not your fault, but it's kind of also, well, your body just doesn't work as opposed to uh, inflammation response, which says it's not your fault. And actually, sorry, we've all let you down because we mm -hmm. are the ones that are supposed to be buffering that response for you. So we now have to own that's it. That's a normal response. That's that's your body reacting in a normal way to keep you alive. That's the what it does it's when it senses danger. It increases this. So, yeah, it is a sign that, you know, yes, there's some things going on. And it's like this idea of the, you know, birth trauma, kind of getting back to that. It's like, yeah, that would, you know, you could actually have somebody who actually had had no mental health symptoms up until that time. And then they can have massive depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of this. It, it only takes one event. You know, that that's all it can take. I mean, it's kind of like when you look at something like sexual assault, I mean, I think we would know instinctively that it would really only take one sexual assault for, you know, a significant portion of people who experience to have symptoms, you know, and so it's kind of like, I don't know why we don't kind of necessarily think about birth in the same way, you know, and it, and by the way, that that can also cause, you know, provider effects, you know, going back to that woman that I told you about with the C-section, um, she said the nurse was standing next to her just sobbing like the whole time. So for sure, she probably had symptoms as well. You know, that was, there was no question about that. But yeah, I still hear people a lot of times say stuff like, well, you know, if they didn't have such high expectations, you know, or they have these unrealistic expectations. And I've been at conferences where I've heard nurses say, oh, look, she's got a birth plan. There's a C-section, you know, and it's kind of like there's a cynicism there. And it's kind of like I do, I do actually try to gently call people out on that and say, well, here's another way to look at that. You know, she's trying to control a situation that there is she really has very little power in. And she's trying to kind of like state her wishes before she actually can get to a point where she may not be able to do that and advocate for herself. You know, so. Yeah, a lot of times I think people are very, very quick to blame the woman for her response, you know, and even blaming things like, you know, previous depression or anxiety or, you know, which can definitely increase risk. There's no question about that. 
But the study after study, and this is looking at some recent ones, have found that the number one predictor is that interaction with the healthcare provider. That is the number one predictor of whether she's going to experience birth trauma. You know, so that's on them. And this brings me actually, this is a really good segue to what I want to talk about because you brought up a couple of it already is Mm -hmm. for so many people, I think there's a question of what we're talking about when we talk about birth trauma, because, you know, there are some people who think it has to be something massively severe, like being held down and having a C-section unmedicated. Uh, And then there are those who believe that anyone who talks about birth trauma, I've heard the dismissiveness. Oh, well, she just expected a perfect birth. Didn't get it. Get over it. Um, That kind of attitude comes out a lot. Uh, And sometimes there's trauma, you know, if a baby doesn't make it, we expect it. But, you know, what are, so when we talk about birth trauma in this general sense of someone experiencing it, what do we include? How do we define it? Because it's not an it, it's not one particular event. We can't look at an event and say, you know, oh, you just like you, you had a vaginal birth. Therefore, back then it was sorry, you don't get to have birth trauma because right. you didn't have a C-section. Um, so how do we help people understand better what is meant by the experience of birth trauma? Well, I think actually, you know, one of the things that's helpful is using the post-traumatic stress disorder event criteria. Okay. And so like, you know, that kind of is at least the current definition of what we consider to be a traumatic event, you know, and it's, it's not trying to kind of minimize other things, but it's trying to say, okay, this rises to a level of sufficient severity. Um, But the other thing to know about this is it really is you know, eye of the beholder, as, you know, Cheryl Beck says, you know, it's really kind of the perception of the event. It's the event, but but it's really the perception of the event, you know, um, you know, so again, as I think sometimes people might listen to that and kind of tend to dismiss it, but it isn't that. It's more like, how is your body interpreting this? You know, so for example, you could have somebody who textbook, like their birth looks textbook. It's, you know, perfect from the doctor's perspective. And yet, and you you hear doctors talk about this, you know, how come this woman, her birth looked perfect, but she's really upset about it. Well, maybe at some point during that, she thought she was going to die, you know, and so her body reacted, you know, with a chain reaction of physiological responses as if she were going to die. And so it doesn't matter if it's true or not, you know, if it's not medically true, and I'm putting air quotes around that, uh, but it's, um, it's more like, did she believe it? Did she really believe that? You know, and that's really kind of what what makes a difference. And, you know, it's interesting because I think providers sometimes really amplify that because, you know, you hear this all the time. You know, a woman will be upset about having a C-section. And so then her doctor trying to make her feel better, basically saying it's not your fault. But the doctor will say something like, well, you know, if you'd been out on the prairie, you would have died. You know, and what they've just done is just amplified that dangerousness aspect of it. You know, so according to the criteria, you know, there's like kind of three types of events that tend to do it. So one is death or threatened death. So this could be, did she believe that she was in danger or baby was in danger? You know, and it's the perception of it. Did you really feel like that you were not in a safe place? Um, Actual or threatened physical injury and actual or threatened sexual violation. Okay. And so by that, I think that really covers, you know, a lot of women's birth experiences. You know, and so again, I think that that's really a pretty good definition, you know, and it's like, I remember one time it was years ago, I was speaking at this like maternal fetal medicine conference and I remember I was going to talk about depression and I had a thing in there on birth trauma and I realized 
that everybody in the room was an MD. I was the only, I was the only PhD on the whole program. And I was one of two women. And I thought, I'm going to get creamed. I really, just, you know, this is going to be fun. So I actually said, um, you know, I thought, okay, how can I frame this? So they'll hear what I'm saying. And so I asked them, I said, you know, how many of you ever had an experience where you, you know, you thought it worth went great, but the woman was really unhappy with it. And, you know, we've got some hands raised and stuff. And this one doctor, he said, you know, I had this. He said, this is exactly what happened. He says, you know, one woman over here has got this, you know, birth that looked just fine to me. You know, and this other woman had a crash C-section, emergency, really scary, but she was fine. You know, and it's like, I would, I would suspect that somebody probably took the time to debrief her, sat down with her, talked to her, supported her through that. You know, so we can go through a lot of stuff and really kind of come out okay if we feel like it's, you know, we we trust the situation we trust the providers you know we feel like that they're listening to us i mean i think we can really go through a lot versus you know she could have believed that she was going to die and i said i brought that up and i said so let me give you an example that maybe you know will make more sense i said you know suppose you're jogging along the road and somebody comes and grabs you and throws you in the trunk of their car now you may honestly believe that you're going to get killed even though the person who kidnapped you doesn't really have any intention of kidnapping or of, of, of killing you. You know, from your body standpoint, it is true. And so it's the same kind of thing. You might believe something that's different than the truth, but it doesn't matter because your body is, you know, reacting to that perceived danger. And so that's the thing that really actually sets it. So when we talk about it being kind of a, the perception, the mother's perception of it, that's what we're talking about. And we're talking about events that are that serious, you know, so, you know, this is something that I think actually, you know, is a distinction. It's not just, oh, you know, I had a C-section and I was really disappointed. It's more kind of like, you know, okay, so what led up to the C-section? You know, maybe you got into a situation where you did not feel safe. And so your body shut down oxytocin because it, it activated that stress system. And then that led to the cascade of interventions. And then eventually you ended up having a C-section that you didn't want. So it's like, there was a dangerousness aspect to that as well. And being out of control, not listened to, you know, and feeling like you don't have a say in things. So all of that contributes. I love that. I, that link to the perception, because I try to tell people that's so important in so many things, because mm. we don't know it's two people can have the same car accident. One has a totally different experience of it than the other. Mm. And it brings up for me, I also think about that debriefing is something I always have to remind families when they have young kids is that that social buffering we do to stress mm -hmm. can happen after the fact. Right. It doesn't, we, we're not always there for the things that traumatize mm -hmm. our children. But if we're there as soon as we can be, and we can go through it with them. Mm -hmm. And so similarly with birth, you know, if you can have that debrief, that discussion that, okay, mm -hmm. we had this all around. But one of the things you mentioned about the events that struck me was that perceived a real sexual assault. And I know it, this is going to be a touchy, but there has to be, I mean, tell me there's starting to be an acknowledgement that you can perceive a medical intervention or experience with a provider during birth similar to the way your body would a sexual assault oh absolutely in fact um one of the articles i wrote for clinical lactation i you know put a thing on my facebook page and i asked for some stories and this um lactation consultant wrote to me and told me about you know her experience she'd been you know she was having a home birth she ended up as a transfer um you know so immediately that was already stressful 
She gets to the hospital and the doctor immediately starts yelling at her. I know you're going to sue me. I know you're going to sue me, you know, and it's like, so right there, you know, it's just already bad. And so at some point he decides he's going to put in an internal monitor. And she said, wait, you know, can we talk about this? And he said, no. And he yanks her legs apart and puts in the monitor. And she immediately started having panic attacks right there. And she said it was like two years. You know, she said she was having trouble being intimate with her husband. She said, she, you know, it was just affecting her. And it, it, she couldn't figure out what was wrong. She thought she was losing her mind. And finally, it was a friend of hers who actually said, you know, that was a sexual assault. I think you have PTSD. And she said that was the thing that actually kind of like tilted it. And she all of a sudden said, aha. And she was able to kind of get the help that she needed because she recognized that. You know, so again, like I said, I think actually there's a lot of things that, you know, providers have to do that are very intimate, you know, and we need to actually recognize that this is still, you know, private parts that people really should be able to have some control over who touches them and who doesn't, you know, and sometimes in an emergency, you can't help it, but that situation clearly, you know, and there was another one that uh, Cheryl Beck talked about. It was a nurse who had observed this kind of horrible postpartum where this doctor put his arm you know, he, she said he's, you know, up her to like halfway up his arm. So she said to pull the placenta out. I mean, first of all, you don't even need to do that. And second of all, I mean, this, it was horrible. And she said that, you know, the mom was trying to scoot away and get away from this guy. And the nurse was really traumatized. She said, I felt like I was watching a rape. That's what, that's what she said. That was the language she said. And it was funny because I was at another conference one time and <laughs> again, kind of in a different place, but it's like the, uh, I knew I was kind of in a different place because out to dinner, you know, the night before, one of the other speakers said to me, she says, are you one of those freaks that like doulas? And I was like, you know, yes, guilty. <laughs> but um, this family practice doc, he was speaking right after me and he said, oh, he said, I was going to teach people to do that. He goes, I never thought about it from the mother's perspective. <laughs> so it's kind of like, wow. Oh my goodness. Yeah. You know, it's like, I mean, you know, and he seemed like he was a, you know, affable guy. I don't think he was trying to kind of hurt people, but good Lord. You know, he said he never thought about it from, you know, what the mom's experience of that might be, let alone like some, you know, nurse who was watching it and thinking, good Lord. So, yeah, I think actually I'm hoping we'll start having more conversation about this, but again, remember it's that perception. Do you believe that, you know, you're being touched against your will. And in some cases, you know, it can be a pretty dramatic touch. You know, it, 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 you know, we talk about, you know, sexual assault kind of is a general like legal term is, you know, any kind of unwanted touching, but where we kind of really talk about it in terms of severity is, you know, penetration, you know, and you can actually have that during a birth. And again, like I said, if, if you give permission, you know, it's a, it's a different thing than if, you know, you're just kind of like, people are just sort of working on you with, with no, and, you know, a lot of people have found actually just having extra people in the room watching was also very troubling. You know, that's come up in several of the kind of, you know, qualitative studies. I can buy that. I absolutely believe that. And I will save my stories for later. But um, there was one question I want to get on about this before we go on. But okay. it seems to me like potentially there's a difference in trauma. And maybe you've kind of touched on it a bit. I, I can see where the answer might be. Hmm. But the trauma that we kind of view is inevitable. So someone who unfortunately say right. the baby doesn't make it, right. uh, stuff like that versus where we have trauma that is caused by a caregiver. 
Right. Uh, so we're talking about these kind of mm-hmm. pulling a placenta out, uh, mm-hmm. putting in an internal monitor against someone's will, that kind of trauma that may be existing. Are there differences in how people respond to those, their outcomes from that? Uh, or is it just, I mean, I guess I, I start wondering because we expect there to be trauma right. in one case. We don't expect it in the other. So it feels like that would then change the way it's experienced after the fact. Well, you know, it's, it's really interesting that, that you asked this question. I remember seeing this on, on the list because it's like, it's a very astute question. I'll compliment you on that. Yes. <laughs> but um, one of the things actually that people have found, which I thought was interesting is looking at provider effects is it's like when you look at, um, OBGYNs and nurse midwives and talk about trauma for them, secondary trauma, you know, it, there's kind of the top three list and it's like, it's the, the same list for both groups. So it's, um, infant or fetal demise, um, shoulder dystocia and infant resuscitation. So those three things are kind of what we considered sort of the top in terms of what, what causes trauma for them, you know, and it, they've got, you know, it's a pretty high percentage of our, you know, maternity care providers actually have trauma. You know, and so it's like, it's kind of a shockingly high number, but for people who don't have kind of primary agency over the birth. So we're talking about people like nurses and doulas and stuff. The thing that actually causes the problem is, you know, observing providers causing unnecessary harm, you know, to the mother and to the infant. And I think at some level, that's probably a a difference for, for mothers as well, because you know, it's like, it's one thing to think, okay, you know, this was unavoidable. This was horrible. You know, I've lost my baby, you know, versus, you know, my labor was so badly managed, you know, that my baby died in the process of it. I think you're going to have a really different kind of experience or, you know, all these interventions were really not necessary. And then it caused, you know, me to end up having a C-section I didn't want to have. You know, and so I think you're going to find that you would be kind of manifested a little differently. I think, you know, it, you know, if you lose a baby and it's inevitable, I think actually it's more of a kind of a straight grief versus, you know, a, a trauma thing versus, you know, it felt like somebody was either deliberately or through stupidity um, harming you. And I think actually that, you know, because we know like when you compare different types of, of, of traumatic events, like for example, natural disasters versus interpersonal violence, you know, interpersonal violence tends to actually have a stronger effect, you know, um, you know, even though both can actually result in, in loss of life and, you know, injury and things, but there's something about that sort of intentionality or, you know, something that Jennifer Fried at University of Oregon studies is what she calls betrayal trauma when institutions or people that you're expecting, you know, to protect you and support you actually really fundamentally let you down, you know, and don't, and don't, you know, watch out for you. You know, an example is, you know, as I've been watching that Netflix series, Athlete A, uh, about the um, sexual assault of the gymnastic, you know, the U.S. gym team, you know, and it's like, there was so many levels of betrayal trauma on that. So many people who knew, you know, and did nothing. You know, and it's like the interesting thing is, you know, in that documentary, they focused mostly on the sexual abuse from Larry Nasser, but they didn't focus as much. They did. They mentioned it quite a few times, but they didn't really focus as much on all the physical and emotional abuse, you know, that the other people were doing. 
you know, like, you know, if they wane girls and then slapping them in the face to the extent that it was leaving ring marks on their face, you know, and telling them, calling them fat pigs. And, you know, that's actually one, one of the people they were interviewed who has a former elite athlete said, you know, that's the thing. They were so beaten down by the time the sexual assault came along, they were even questioning whether they were reading the situation correctly. But that was an example of a betrayal trauma. And it's like, I would say the same thing for, you know, if you expect, you know, your healthcare provider and, you know, if, if you have, if you give birth in a hospital, that they will protect you and then they don't. I think that that creates another sort of layer of, of difficulty that makes it kind of harder, I think, to uh, get over the trauma or it makes you, you know, angrier and maybe makes the symptoms worse. I was also going to ask, because I think it also adds the layer afterwards in terms of social support, because mm -hmm. when you lose a baby... You're yeah. everyone's there. They are there to support you. They're there to make sure you're okay. But right. if you come back, it, it kind of brings up all those people that come back and say, oh, well, if you came out alive, there's no reason to complain. Right. Just, right. you know, you're, you're fine. Like, stop complaining about it. Mother and baby lived. You have nothing to complain about, right. which of course, I mean, I can imagine you have choice words for that kind of mentality. <laughs> but you know, even worse is when they come back and start saying stuff like, well, you know, you've always been difficult or, you know, actually, you know, one of my friends in grad school, her grandmother called her and quote, an ungrateful bitch because she was upset over what happened during her birth. You know, and it's like, yeah, so I mean, there, there would be a place where, again, you know, people you're expecting to support you are not there. Her grandmother? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. <laughs> okay. Granny, um, granny, Granny's got a mouth on her. <laughs> <laughs> and not in a good way. That is not, yeah, I mean, the kind you want. But no, there. I mean, you know, so it's kind of like if you tell people and they sound, come back with, you know, they blaming you for it. I remember actually being told, oh, you must not have exercised during your pregnancy. It's like that was that was completely nonsensical it didn't make any you know any sense but it, putting that kind of i think people sometimes are uncomfortable you know it's like so they want to kind of find a way to explain it so that it's something that's not going to happen to them you know or that's something they can control and it's kind of like that's the problem with trauma it's like a lot of times you know the events are really uncontrollable and yeah and people don't want to think about things happening to them. If they blame you for it, it's right. not me. It's not the system. I do, and it absolves us of making changes. I think right. the more we can blame individuals, the less we have to look at systemic change. And right. that's really hard to face up to, even when we're not the ones responsible for that. Systemic change has to happen with everyone. And a lot of us just get lazy and kind of walk back from it. So we've talked about what birth trauma is, but let's talk about the consequences because okay. I think there's the, the obvious one. Most people are, are obviously not surprised that mental health is, is right. a big one as you've talked on, but you know, specifically what other kinds of trauma or sequelae do we have to think about? Because, you know, I think about a mother with postpartum depression, right. obviously that has an effect on, the entire interactions with her baby. It's not just she has postpartum depression and we're going to compartmentalize it over here. It oh. has far ranging effects, including on breastfeeding. And oh. I'm really interested to hear about the research on that. But specifically, what are these main effects that we see on women who have specifically struggled with birth trauma? Well, you know, the three big ones, of course, you know, are the mental health. And so, you know, a lot of times we think of post-traumatic stress disorders being the most common. It actually isn't. You know, depression and anxiety are much more common in, in the wake of it. 
you know, it still is a traumatic experience, but PTSD is not the only sequela of trauma. You know, um, also, I think there's going to be uh, some physiological problems. There'll be things like hypervigilance, you know, difficulty sleeping. And so you've already kind of got a mom who's kind of on the edge, you know, and she's just not sleeping. She's not, you know, she can't go to sleep. She can't stay asleep. Um, so then she's going to be a lot more fatigued. That's going to impact everything. It's going to impact the way she interacts with the baby. It's going to, you know, the way she interacts with the partner, uh, people around her. It's going to impact whether she can go to work. I mean, you know, so there's just all kinds of things where, you know, you get this sort of ripple effect. You know, we know that people who have, you know, depression, anxiety, or PTSD, you know, are high, have higher inflammation. So there's some long-term health effects from that. Uh, you know, and again, not sleeping actually is one of the things that predicts higher inflammation levels, like it's say three years postpartum, you know, and so if that's kind of not addressed, that can actually have long-term health implications, you know, because inflammation underlies basically every illness you can think of, you know, from heart disease to diabetes to cancer to, you know, to Alzheimer's. I mean, it's just, it's the sort of thing that unifies them all. And so again, like I said, anything that's kind of like chronically elevating, that's not a good thing. Um, but you, you know, you talked about breastfeeding. Um, we actually don't have as much research on that as you would think, but the biggest thing that is actually something that you can predict, and this is actually true for most birth interventions as well, is if it's a stressful birth, we know specifically that the stress hormone cortisol actually suppresses prolactin. So it can delay lactogenesis too, you know, when the milk becomes more abundant by several days. And so you can actually have a mom and a baby who get into a lot of trouble, you know, between that time because they may not know, you know, and this is something I talk to providers a lot about. It's just like, you know, if you've got a mom who knows how to difficult birth, you don't necessarily have to say, oh, you're probably going to have some trouble, but watch her, you know, and have her come in, you know, touch base with her and make sure things are on track because that baby can end up back in the hospital. Okay. So that's going to kind of compound things for her. You know, um, skin to skin may be actually more difficult for somebody who's actually had a trauma because it's like that just is way too much, you know, sort of stimulation. You know, so it's like, you know, providers need to be kind of on the lookout there, you know, kind of like if you see a mom who's kind of like recoiling or she's just all of a sudden checking out, you know, it's kind of like you need to ask some questions like, you know, that seems like it's not very comfortable for you. You know, maybe if we minimize it and just to have the baby's cheek on your breast and then cover everything else up. You know, there's some simple kinds of things to do, but I think probably one of the biggest things is to me, probably the most scary long-term effect is it can impact the attachment that that mom and that baby have formed. You know, and like, I remember one of the studies was talking about that, the, you know, their long-term effects, you know, was longitudinal study. And so they found that the mothers eventually attached their babies at three to five years postpartum. And then the attachments were more likely to be insecure. You know, and it's like, that's a lifelong effect. You know, the insecure attachment, as I know, you know, being a nice developmental psychologist like myself, but the insecure attachment predicts, you know, everything from school achievement to social to, you know, like job success. I mean, it just predicts everything. And it's kind of like the unfortunate, the tragic thing in my mind is that mom maybe are not going to get that back. They're not going to get that time back. You know, so it's one of the reasons to be alert. And one of the things I, I tell lactation consultants all the time is I said, you know, even if that mom doesn't end up breastfeeding, you know, the thing you really need to do is get that mom and that baby back together. You know, even if you're doing some simple little intervention, you know, like, you know, when I worked at Children's Hospital in Boston, you know, one of the things they used to do is they used to use the Brazelton, the, you know, the neonatal behavioral assessment scale with moms and say, look at how that baby is following your voice. 
how she turns her head when she hears your voice. You know, uh, this is your, your baby response. It's just kind of like give ways to kind of bring that mom and that baby back together. You know, infant massage is a great way to kind of do that. Find a way to connect, you know, because again, like I said, it's not unusual. I mean, avoidance symptoms are actually one of the kind of categories of symptoms following PTSD, you know, so who are you going to avoid following a birth? Well, you know, probably your providers, you probably avoid the hospital setting, but you may avoid anybody else who's there. Partner, how about the baby? And, you know, the, these, these studies that have looked at that have really specifically found that. And so, again, like I said, we don't know as much about what happens with the breastfeeding, but I've actually worked with several moms who had really difficult births, and then they were having difficulty breastfeeding, and it was like just, it just compounded. But conversely, you know, we've also found that in this was Cheryl, Cheryl Beck has kind of found this, that there kind of tended to be one of two groups, you know, that either breastfeeding didn't work out or the mothers found it tremendously healing. Like that it was, you know, it was one mom said it was something my body could do right. You know, she felt like, you know, her body had failed her, you know, that she had failed at all this. She'd failed at birth and that breastfeeding was really important. And it showed, she said, you know, to everyone else, most myself, that there was something I could do right. You know, and so that it becomes like that kind of almost, you know, um, mark of success. And so you can kind of, you know, if you want to flip that, think about what happens when it doesn't work. You know, then it's, you know, failure and failure. You know, and again, like I said, I, I, I don't consider it failure, but the mothers do. That's I'm using kind of their terminology. Um, so again, like I said, it really can make a big difference in just terms of that whole postpartum experience. You know, one of the things I would suggest in a case of, you know, if there was a difficult birth, you know, is sometimes one of the things that some mothers have found very helpful is, you know, like getting in the tub with the baby. And just kind of having that water, you know, and just kind of in some ways, you know, I won't, I don't want to say rebirthing. It's not quite that, but it's like the similar kind of like, just calm down. Everybody calms down and connect, you know, um, but also too, we know that baby wearing is actually really helpful, you know, in terms of promoting attachment, even, you know, among moms who are not breastfeeding, it's a good way to do it. You know, infamous massage is another good way. So, you know, again, bring, try to, you know, do it what I would urge providers to do is just do everything you can to, you know, to bring that mom and baby together because they won't get that time back, you know, and that, that's a tragedy. That's, I think the real tragedy of the story. It's so my first thought was when you mentioned just going back to the breastfeeding piece quickly was I do wonder how much of our birth system is part mm -hmm. of why we seem to see much greater breastfeeding struggling rates that oh. I think, you know, when we look at, at least I know from reading the research, you mm -hmm. know, we have these numbers of biologically, where should we expect to see the numbers? Right. And then culturally, where are we seeing the numbers? Right. And we have a lot of the support issues, postpartum, et cetera. But I'm, it sounds to me like we're not going back far enough to even look at, you know, where this all may start in terms of these struggles there, that it, we really need to be looking at the birth as well. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, going back to, you know, allegedly, and, you know, in the 1950s was saying that, you know, that, you know, an unmedicated birth is going to be more likely to result, you know, in, in the breastfeeding, you know, experience that works. Uh, so I, I think actually, really, there's something to that. I don't want to ever send the message, though, that if you've had an awful birth, that you're going to have, you know, that breastfeeding is not going to work, because I don't think it is. But it's like, I mean, I, excuse me, I think breastfeeding really can work in that situation. Um, but I want to also recognize that there could be a difficulty, you know, and so it's like one of the things that's kind of important to know is like sometimes, you know, especially in that 
period where there's a delay in lactogenesis. I mean, you know, one of my Laetitia League leaders when I lived in New Hampshire, she was a doula and she'd been at a really bad birth. And I mean, I think this uh, woman, her clients, you know, lactogenesis was delayed six days. You know, so there may need to be some supplementation there, you know, but using it as a bridge strategy, because of course you have to feed the baby, you know, but I think part of it is, you know, where I think the real danger is, is that I think a lot of times moms and their partners may not recognize that there's anything wrong. And then all of a sudden there really is something wrong. Um, so it's kind of like, this is, this has got to be on providers, but we've got to be careful as providers not to share that expectation with mothers. You know, there's a great commentary in, in the Journal of Female Lactation that was talking about how, you know, nurses in the recovery room post-C-section were telling mothers, well, you know, you've had a C-section, so you're probably going to have a delay in lactogenesis true, uh, too. It's like that is 100% true. That's a true statement. But what the mothers were hearing was, I'm not going to be able to breastfeed. You know, so it's kind of like, you know, again, like I said, I do a lot of training with nurses. And I'm like, okay, let's stop the TMI, Okay. <laughs> We don't need to share everything we know because it sometimes can be counterproductive. Um, and so again, like I said, we just as providers need to be alert to that, you know, but if you're, if you're a mom or, you know, a partner listening to this and you wonder why things were hard at the beginning, this could be why, but kind of going back to the, you know, like, why do we have so many things like sore nipples? That's probably the number one complaint, you know, and it's like probably between 15, 60% of new mothers are reporting that. I think part of the problem, honestly, I'm going to kind of agree with Suzanne Colson on this. And I think part of the problem is we, we tend to teach breastfeeding in, you know, in a very kind of didactic, you have to sit this way, you have to hold the baby this way, you have to, you know, and it's like, she, you know, that's when she came up with the theory of biological nurturing is this idea that, you know, the moms and the babies actually have some hard wiring, but they don't necessarily recognize it because you can override it, you know, and you start like, you know, doing that kind of really sort of rigid, you know, and she was talking about, especially in the UK, which is where she did her work, you know, sitting in the typist position upright, you know, and you've got to hold the baby this way. And, you know, and I've actually seen her technique, which is her technique is if you haven't uh, been familiar with it, but it's having the baby kind of like having the mother, first of all, sit comfortably, like she's watching TV and having the baby kind of face down across the mom's body. So that the, the body, the mom's body is, is actually holding the weight of the baby. You know, and so she recommends she recommends having the baby's cheek up against the breast, and then the baby starts this sequence of head bobbing, you know, and latches onto the breast. And you can tell the moms, you know, go ahead and help them, and that's about all the instruction they need. And they just did a big um, trial of this in Italy, you know, and they compared the standard kind of didactic, you know, with um, using the biological nurturing approach, and it dramatically dropped sore nipples. You know, and I've Kitty Franz out in Southern California, they she just anecdotally told me they did the same thing. And she said they found the same thing. It dramatically dropped it. it this sounds exactly like the breast crawl. Yeah, it's yeah. it's well, it's similar to the breast crawl, except Suzanne actually Suzanne likes to argue with people, but Suzanne says you don't necessarily need to have the baby crawl. She said just because they can doesn't mean that they necessarily need to, you know. <laughs> So fair she, enough. Fair enough. She said, actually, in some of those breasts, I mean, the breast crawl thing is really cool. I use that video like all the time. But she said one of the problems that she's observed with it is, and in, in fact, she even shows one of the big studies from Sweden, is that half the babies fell asleep before they had their first feed. <laughs> so she said, that would be a problem. <laughs> that does not work with. Yeah, uh, so it's kind of like, yeah, they've got this remarkable ability, but maybe on that first feed, let's help them a little bit, you know, and it's, and it's okay to actually for the, the mom to help, 
you know, and that's that's where she in some ways kind of differs a little bit from the breast crawl. But yes, it's the same mechanisms. You know, so she said, if you got the baby up here, you know, a baby's cheek on the mother's breast, she said it's going to trigger that. And then all of a sudden the mom's going to start doing some stuff. You know, she's going to start grooming. She's going to start, you know, restoring their feet. You know, and she shows when, you know, she, I've seen her present before and she shows video after video of the mom doing the same sequence of behaviors. You know, and it's like nobody taught anybody how to do that. It's just like it, it, it triggered something. They have to have that releasing mechanism, you know, those releasing stimuli. And then all of a sudden, you know, all this stuff falls into place. But yeah, I had this, I had this one mom. She was actually the sister of somebody who worked in my orthopedist office, you know, and she was having a miserable time, miserable. She was one week postpartum, you know, ready to quit, had sore nipples, bleeding, the whole bit. So I, said to her sister, I said, you know, you have her give me a call. And so she did. And so we got on Zoom and, um, you know, I said, okay, so it's going to, it may take me a bit to figure out what's going on here. But I said, let's try this. And so I said, just sit comfortably. And so she's doing all this. And the baby just like, it was like textbook starts bobbing like this latches on. And, you know, she said, what should I do? I said, just, you know, go ahead and, you know, feel free to adjust. And all I said, and like the baby fed beautifully, you know, mom was in no pain. You know, even with so it's like it works really well. But I think again, like I said, we have first of all we stress moms during birth. You know, they have this delay, and then we teach them in a very sort of rigid left brain kind of way. And I think kind of the combo of that I think leads to a number of problems. You know, and then of course we can get into the whole you know what happens afterwards. You know, support. You know, there's a whole lot of problems. But I think you know I, a lot of people quit because they have sore nipples, and it's like honestly, I don't blame them for that. No, I mean. <laughs> exactly. I wouldn't, I, if it had been awful for me, I don't know how long I would have gone as yeah, is, as, you know, I feel that way ages. It's, yeah. I was just lucky. I don't know lucky, but I did know, I did, I guess, probably more of this other than the actual breast crawl because I was just, my kids are getting close to the boob, but then they can get on themselves. Right. They're up at the boob and go for right. it. Right. And it was lovely. It was easy and it went, it was great. That's like, uh, brilliant. I wanted to follow up on something we talked about, you know, you mentioned with birth, you come out and there's kind of this dyad already, this relationship between baby and mom mm -hmm. and this connection. I'm thinking about birth trauma and yeah. I'm just wondering, we see all these effects on mom, mm -hmm. but, and the attachment, this is the attachment piece that I'm really going in on. But do we think that there's any initial effect on babies? contribution to that dyad from the traumatic birth because i think about mm. during birth we know those hormones must you know to perceive that you're going to die there's going to be right. oh huge stress hormones right going and on they're already, already high so what does this you know I, I hate the word but tell the baby in a sense about the environment their life like in terms of trying to forge a connection? Does it have a short interruption on that? Is there anyone who's looked at these potential, perhaps direct effects on baby? We know the indirect through this mm. attachment struggle, but are there also potentially direct effects that might exacerbate that attachment struggle that a mom might have? You know, I think there's probably a couple of things, you know, that could, I mean, it's like, I, obviously, and I'm sure you know this too, that it, this would be extremely difficult to research, you know, so, some people have tried, but it's kind of like, it's a hard thing to kind of research the baby's experience of trauma, but you can actually kind of extrapolate a couple of things. Like first, for example, is the baby in pain? 
you know, and it's like a lot of times, I mean, these births are just, you know, brutal for the baby, you know, their head gets all smooshed, you know, it's like they may actually have some, you know, things where there's the sutures in their skull have kind of moved and their baby, you know, their head's not quite, you know, the right shape and it hurts, you know, uh, sometimes they get their collarbones broken or other limbs, you know, like they may have their arm broken, you know, so it's like, they may be in, a, they may be in pain. They may have, they may have a big bruise because they got dragged out with, you know, on the, with forceps or with a vacuum, you know, so I think pain is one thing. And, you know, we know that that's going to really activate the stress system. And so I think actually definitely that can have an effect. And I think kind of the other effect that, you know, it could actually have is more crying, you know, and sleep problems, you know? And so it's like, I think you could see how this would actually kind of create this like interactive effect because we know that if babies cry a lot, you know, moms are more likely to get depressed, especially if they're, they don't know why. And they don't, you know, understand, you know, there's a lot of reasons why babies cry, but that could be, that could be one of the things that kind of can impair. Um, and if they're not sleeping and it's like, this really does also interact with some of the mother's personality characteristics and, you know, her like things like her need for sleep, you know, and also too, does she have an easygoing temperament or does she have a more kind of high needs temperament? You know, and so that actually is, you know, can interact. And so like if you have a baby with a high needs temperament, mom with a high needs temperament and this birth was really traumatic and the baby's crying and maybe they're in pain. And I'm, you can kind of see how this story is not going to be, you know, as easy. You know, I, I do believe in, you know, resiliency and I believe that, you know, people kind of overcome very difficult beginnings. Um, but it's hard. Now, one of the people who's actually researched this, you asked that, was um, Dr. Shirsten Ugnes Moberg, who studies all the, uh, does all the oxytocin research. And um, one of the things she has said, you know, over and over and over to me is that one of the things that's very helpful about skin to skin is it immediately lowers the stress response for both mother and baby. That birth is stressful, even under the best circumstance, birth is stressful for both. And what that immediately does is reset it because, you know, oxytocin and the stress system kind of work like a light switch. You know, it's like when one side is up, the other is suppressed. So oxytocin suppresses the stress response, but it goes the other way. You know, stress suppresses oxytocin. So that's why, like, for example, high stress birth, you know, we need we need oxytocin for milk ejection. You know, and it's like if you've got really elevated stress hormone levels, milk ejection is going to be more difficult. But it's also the thing that if you're having a very stressful time during birth and you feel like you're in danger, that's a really big kind of key thing. Or you're 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 in a tremendous amount of pain that you don't feel like you can cope with. It's going to shut your labor down, you know, because the stress is going to stop the oxytocin. You know, so kind of like thinking about it from the other side, you know, it's like if if you can get if if moms can tolerate this. The skin to skin can actually be something that really kind of settles and brings everything back down, you know, and, and actually can kind of help the babies overcome. Because, again, like I said, they're naturally adapted to having a certain amount of the stress. But, you know, what we want to kind of avoid if we can or see if we can kind of help them cope with. And I think actually things like, you know, the baby wearing and, the you know, and the breastfeeding and stuff actually are things that actually help, um, but help them kind of settle down you know, and like get that stress response kind of under control, but also kind of recognizing too, you know, it's like, um, you know, one of the most difficult things, and you can think about somebody who's already had a difficult birth experience. Well, what happens, you know, when you have a mom who, you know, she's put her baby to breast and the baby starts actively pushing against, you know, they're arching, they're stiffening up, they're pushing away, you know, and it's very easy for moms to say, my baby doesn't like me. Or maybe he doesn't like breastfeeding, you know, and so then that becomes really difficult. But maybe it's a situation where um, it's very uncomfortable for that baby on that side, 
Uh, you know, I actually had somebody who's a friend of mine, they called her and her husband called one time, fourth baby. He was doing that. He was pushing away just on the one side. And, you know, so I was just kind of asking some questions, but it turned out, I said, you know, do you have, does milk come out pretty fast? And they were like, oh yeah, it does. So he was trying to protect himself. Against that. You know, it's like, it kind of had nothing to do with that, you know, with not liking or any of things like that. I mean, you and I know that, you know, babies don't necessarily have that level of cognition where they can actually, you know, even make those kind of judgments. Um, but it moms a lot of times feel it. And if they're already feeling like a failure because of their birth, you know, and then they start getting this reaction, um, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to kind of like just be okay with that and kind of go along without that impacting how you feel about yourself as a woman, how you feel about yourself as a mother. You know, I had some of the women that I interviewed told me that they hurried back to work because it was like an environment they understood. You know, and it's like they, they felt like they, they needed to get back on competent ground again. You know, so again, like I said, the pain, you know, that could be one way I could see the pain, you know, actually kind of impacting things. I think what you just said about going back to work, I was thinking as you were talking about the temperament of mom and that interactive effect mm -hmm. of, you know, baby is crying more or whatnot, but also after experiencing trauma, the need to control the environment right. around afterwards. Right. And right potentially the need to control a baby who is their own person and yeah. control breastfeeding, which is again, yeah. something that's dyadic and requires people together, but that that trauma is about control. But then I also want to share, I said I would share a story and, and I will with my son's birth. I had a home birth and it was in many mm. ways lovely, but I actually did think I was going to die. I had had mm. a car accident prior. My back was a wreck and the pain from that, the pain neck back down, I actually remember at one point being like, well, this is it. And mm. I'm not actually going to get through this and having a lot of mixed feelings about that. And I did not have long term effects from the birth. And I do believe so much of it was a the support from my midwives at that point and doula mm. were incredible. And my husband was amazing. Mm. But once that baby was born, he was on my chest. I was on the sofa. I don't think I moved for three hours. Mm. Like it was just, he was on me. That was it. My husband made pancakes and <laughs> we ate pancakes on the sofa for everyone. Um, but it really, I think, helped mitigate that immediate stress that had happened. Again, the social buffering after the fact. I didn't have it buffered in the moment because no one knew what I was thinking. There right. was no awareness of that. But after the fact, that oxytocin rush, the support of people mm -hmm. around, the talking through everything was yep. so powerful that I do think that was a big mitigating factor. Um, and I never would have thought about the skin to skin until you just mentioned that. I just thought mm -hmm. it was kind of the support I knew, the social support after was really key. But I didn't think about the skin to skin there, which is mm -hmm. fascinating. Yeah, you know, it would, you know, it would really be both because you get this huge surge of oxytocin afterwards. Yeah, you know, and it's like it's like the, pretty much the highest, you know, at any time in your life. You know, what's kind of interesting is one of the things that Tristan uh, taught me about oxytocin. She said, you know, we think about it as the love and the bonding hormone and all that great stuff. But she said the thing that is, you know, kind of also interesting is that, you know, it makes you very attuned to social cues. You know, and it's like so this is why mothers become very vulnerable to like negative stuff. And it may actually have nothing to do with them. But it's like, you know, if people come in and they've had a fight with their husband and they come into the labor room, the mom's going to pick that up and she's going to take that as a kind of a judgment, you know. And so, again, like I said, especially if they're experiencing real judgment, but it doesn't even necessarily need that, that there's a vulnerability there. 
you know, but there's also a flip side to that, which is the good part. Like if you plant good things in there, then all of a sudden they, you know, it, it has also a very long-term effect, you know, and there was, you know, another really good, it was a two, you know, two different studies and they were looking at uh, training midwives, you know, and health workers about breastfeeding. So they did two different approaches. They used either like standard, you know, didactic training, or they used what they call process oriented training where people had a chance to talk about their own breastfeeding experiences and kind of process that, you know, so they learned this stuff, but they also had this, well, the mothers did not know which one of these midwives they got. And yet there were significant differences between, you know, the moms who got the ones who processed their own junk, you know, got it out of the way they, you know, they breastfed longer. They, they were, they breastfed earlier. They were more likely to be exclusive in the hospital. Um, they judged everybody else more positively, even people who hadn't participated in the study. I mean, you know, there was this massive halo effect. And so here are things that give you an idea of, this incredible sort of spidey sense, you know, that the mothers develop. And so that can be used in a good way or in kind of negative way. So, but think about a woman who's been through trauma. Okay. So chances are she already feels like she's in a very unsafe place, you know, and she's feeling very vulnerable and she's very attuned to all these things that might seem like, so if somebody comes along and, you know, you hear these stories, I mean, I hear these stories from moms all the time, but you know, somebody comes along and said, no, you're doing it wrong. You know, it's like, you know, it's like you can imagine the, the negative long-term effect on that. You know, it's like, even if you don't say that, maybe you kind of like, you know, blow out your cheeks and you got, you know, so it's like one of the things, again, like the talking to providers is like, I say, look, you know, deal with your stuff before you walk into that room, you know, just take a minute It kind of deal with it. And, you know, one of the things that worries me is like, I'm working on a lit review right now, looking at, you know, uh, burnout and, uh, secondary trauma in providers and it's like at a pretty high level and they were saying one of the things that actually can be a problem for that is then it's hard to give compassionate empathic care you know if you're feeling like that and it's like so i mean i think actually there are systemic things that are going on you know and it's like okay so then okay so what's causing the burnout and what's causing the secondary trauma you know and what kinds of institutional things can be done to mitigate that. And I think actually this is when you start talking about things at the policy level, you know, in the leadership level, you know, and one of the things that came up, you know, when I was doing this lit review, which I was really surprised by was a number of studies on what they call lateral violence. So when the, the you know, the nurses are experiencing, you know, aggression from other staff members, um, you know, it's kind of like, wow, you know, it's like, you know, there needs to be some serious rethink about this. You know, if we're going to stop birth trauma from happening, we need to be looking at also what's going on with the providers. You know, and it's like, I think that that would save a lot of human misery, but I think it would also make it better. I need to have you on to do an entire episode on the trauma for the providers, because I have so many questions to ask you about that. But I know we're coming up on time and I know you have to run because you're traveling right after this. So I want to be respectful of your time. So I will not start a new hour long conversation <laughs> um, at the moment, but I will bug you again um, okay. to do something on that. So as we close out, I'm going to ask one question um, to finish up here, but what do you think is then, you've kind of just talked about, you know, so many systemic changes. If you could make one change, if a hospital policy person, I don't even know what they're called up there, uh, is listening, what would be the one change that you think would have the greatest impact in the long run? I think one of the biggest things would be a mechanism for say, particularly nurses, to be able to report abusive, 
behavior because there's there's nothing for that right now and it's like they just either have to like turn a blind eye or they leave you know that's that's what tends to be what happens and so there doesn't ever seem to be any consequence you know unless there's like an injury or a lawsuit or something like that but for the most part you know people just suffer in silence you know and it's like i think there needs to be a mechanism where there can be some feedback provided you know and where actually parents have an opportunity to provide feedback you know sometimes people say oh you know you're just treating birth like a business i wish they would treat it like a business because then customer service would actually make a difference. I mean, it would be an important factor and, you know, and surveying people. I mean, I go on United Airlines and they're sending me surveys, you know, how did we do at the gate? How did we do at this? You know, and it's like, you know, a little bit marginal right now with COVID and stuff, but, you know, they're asking me if when I rent a car, they're asking me that, but somehow we don't seem to do that, you know, with getting feedback from the parents who experience, but also if providers observe something, you know, that they need to have a safe place where they can report it, you know, and it's like, I don't think we do. And I think that that would change some things, you know, and it's like, that's not necessarily to try to bust providers. I'm, you know, not saying that. I think there are some bad apples that probably do need to be busted, but it's more like, you know, let's think about this and let's think about this from the mother's experience, you know, use it as a teaching opportunity, you know, and sometimes you're going to have people who just are abusive. Okay. And they actually, there needs to be some action taken in those cases you know, some disciplinary action. But, you know, for the most part, let's use it. I mean, like that guy who didn't realize that putting his arm up a woman's vagina was bad. You know, it's kind of like, let's assume good intent until we know that there's not. That's exactly, I was thinking about that one case of, I was about to teach everyone this until I thought about this. It's not malicious, but there definitely needs, and had he done that once, and like you said, there'd been a feedback mechanism, he would, oh, well, that's probably would have learned very readily and been able to modify course. Let's say that there was a a situation where it warranted that. I mean, I'm not sure exactly what that situation would be, but let's say, you know, there's sometimes you have to take emergency actions. Know that then you can kind of go back and talk and say, you know, listen, this is why we had to do this, but, you know, and kind of like talk, talk women through about, you know, why we did it or have somebody explain, okay, he's going to have to do this now. Exactly. Uh, That is so good. So, I can't thank you enough. This is so enlightening. This topic is fascinating. And there are so many layers. It's like the world's biggest onion of layer after layer and effects and everything. It is, I can see why you have 470 publications. And I know they're not all on birth trauma, but my goodness, there's so much to look at here. There's a lot of them on birth trauma. (laughs) There is a lot there. So Right now, just before we go, and you run off to to catch a plane, I guess. And they no, can we're ask- driving. But- you are driving. All right. So at least you're driving, but late at night there. Um, yeah. But you have a new book out. I, I have a new book that's going to be available for pre-order in November. Oh, okay. Sorry. It is coming yeah. out. Yes. coming It's coming out, and it's called Breastfeeding Doesn't Need to Suck. We had to tweak the title a little bit because somebody else already had the other title, but um, yeah, breastfeeding doesn't need to suck. And so, yeah, we are going to, there's going to be a lot of discussion about trauma in there because it's really important. What I was trying to do with that book is think about breastfeeding from the mother's perspective. I don't talk at all about all the benefits for the baby and everything. Cause I mean, I think we all know those, you know, and they're in a lot of other books, but what I wanted to talk about was, you know, what, what's the mother's experience of this and, you know, like, does she have to continue on in pain? You know, I think sometimes, you know, the mother gets lost in this. And in fact, I, I, 
overheard a lecture somebody was actually telling me about the lecture they'd just been to where the person was saying what do i need to do so you can provide human milk for your baby and it's kind of like okay where is the mother in this in the relationship part of this this felt like you know the mother is just this conveyor of a product you know rather than that you know that emotional component and that relational part you know it's like that and so again like i said that's kind of the mentality i think in some ways we have and we kind of lose the mother in that and so it's kind of like basically how to take care of yourself while you walk through this journey you know and that that's really what i want to focus on is the, the mental health part of it so you know obviously i talk about a whole chapter on birth trauma i talk about you know other types of interpersonal types of things and you know kind of how to cope with it. i have three chapters on social support because it ended up being such a detailed thing. <laughs> I can believe that because that is such a crucial piece to really any breastfeeding journal. It's a journal journey. It's not just something you do there. It involves so many other people that have to kind of be there to support a mother through it. Well, and you know, it's kind of interesting too, because it's like what the social support literature tells us, of course, is it's not just the action, but it's also the person's perception of the action. You know, it's like you can clean somebody's house, but if you're sort of saying, well, you know, I don't see why you can't do this yourself, you know, or I didn't have any help, you know, that's not going to be perceived as probably very helpful versus somebody just comes over and kindly cleans and says, let me please help you with this. I'd love to do this for you. You know, so the same action, but very different, very different effects. Absolutely. And that one of I didn't have help is one that I no, hear from I families all the time and just yeah what a backhanded way to judge someone it is absolutely it is. awful well i cannot thank you enough kathy this has been so lovely i will have all the links if you are interested in finding out more from kathy you can go to her site which is listed in the show notes there you have all your publications yep. your books your speaking engagements i mean you are a very busy woman but um, it is all there. And I do urge you, check out the books, read the articles, some of these articles on trauma. And I know when you shared some of those quotes, I'd read that one yeah. Yeah. Uh, from it is, it, I give you a warning. Here is your trigger warning. It's triggering. And mm -hmm. it is really hard, but I think it's really important for all of us to who can right. to read it and know so that we know what people need from us to enact change. And, and I would actually suggest, you know, I have one called Making Peace with Their Birth Experience. And there's a there's a couple of birth experiences in there, but they're not it's not quite as intense as some of the other articles. You know, so I think actually it would be, you know, that would be probably a good place to start. And really, the other thing I really kind of want to get across is you can heal from trauma. You know, I actually have complete faith, you know, that it, it's not always an easy thing, you know, but a lot of times people come out of you know, walking through a trauma journey and they come out, you know, stronger in some different ways. And I don't mean that in a cliched way. I mean, it's like, it does kind of change things. And, you know, there's a whole kind of field of study called post-traumatic growth, you know, talk about that. And oftentimes that's not just that you walked through the trauma and just went right into growth. You know, oftentimes the people who experience growth are also experience significant PTSD. It's kind of like the process of going through that. You know, when you talk about people who don't have any symptoms, that's what you call more resilience. But post-traumatic growth, you know, oftentimes you, you struggle, you know, and you may actually have, you may have actually have aspects of both at the same time, you know, where, you know, things are still difficult. You know, it's like it's difficult when your child has a birthday. 
you know, or it's difficult when you smell a certain thing or when you see a certain provider, you know, or when somebody else talks to you about this blissful experience they had and you think, you know, why couldn't I have had that? You know, so there, there may be times, but there are also times that you find that certain relationships get stronger, you know, that you may discover that you had strengths you never knew you had. You know, and you may go on to actually focus on things that are different. You know, maybe, you know, work seemed like kind of the be all and end all. You realize, you know, relationships actually are really important. You know, so there's lots of things that can actually happen along the journey. Um, one thing I would actually recommend is if you feeling like you've got a lot of trauma symptoms, you know, um, a place I send a lot of moms is this is going to sound like a strange resource, but it's the National Center for Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder. And the reason I say it's strange is because it's set up by the Veterans Affairs you know, department. And so it's for, it's for combat vets. But the reason I like to send people there is it's got a lot of good general information about trauma, including lots of stuff about all the different treatment options that are available and, you know, things like, you know, the resources, and there's a lot of self-help stuff, there's apps, there's all kinds of tools. So, you know, just re recognize that some of it's not going to apply to you, but there's a lot of stuff that's very general and it's really kind of a good resource. And there's also an organization called Prevention and Treatment of Traumatic Childbirth, Patch, P-A-T-T-C-H.org. Um, and they've got a lot of good information about, uh, about birth trauma, including some webinars and things like that that you can listen to for more information. Thank you so much. That is so valuable because I think people do need resources to go to because we don't always have them on hand. Yeah. Kathy, thank you so much. I yeah, I've have, had a, a really good time. That's oh, fun. it has been lovely. Thank you. Have a wonderful anniversary. Thank you very much. And I will be in touch because we've got a whole other topic to get Great. to next time. You know what? I'm, ha I'm happy to talk about it. It's, it's been a fascinating thing digging into that literature. Thank you so much for listening. That's it for this week. If you have experienced birth trauma, I do hope you feel a little less alone and perhaps feel there are ways you can start to heal from this. If you're working in the birthing field, please consider Dr. Kendall Tackett's advice at the end. We must try to implement a reporting system if we want to see things change. Now join me next week as I welcome Dr. Leela Rankin-Williams to the show to discuss her incredible work on baby wearing. For years, it's been an untouched area of research, and she's changing that. And the findings are quite something. In the meantime, stay safe and happy parenting.